The diagnostics industry is not a place where you'd normally expect a scandal. Safety and quality are paramount, and for that reason, the industry is heavily regulated. It tends to move incrementally, with innovations expected to be fully proven before reaching the market. But in the past decade, two events have sent shockwaves through the industry, threatening to upend the status quo. One is the Theranos scandal, where Silicon Valley's move fast and break things approach was found lacking. The second, a global pandemic that shuttered billions in their homes and demanded an immediate response. It seems that the very system Theranos were trying to break proved that under the greatest of pressures could be flexible and adaptable. Were Theranos onto something? Is there anything in their approach that we can learn from? And what has the COVID pandemic taught us about the role of diagnostic testing in society at large? To find out, join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug in to invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, why is self-testing so hard to get right? Unless you've been living under a rock, you've almost certainly heard about the Theranos story by now. John Carreyou's best-selling book, Bad Blood, followed the downfall of the company, and Elizabeth Holmes's subsequent trial hasn't been far from the headlines either. It's been one of the closest followed stories in science in the past few decades, and for good reason. It's a thrilling tale of making it and breaking it, of secrets and lies. The diagnostics industry is constantly looking to make testing quicker and easier, to bring diagnostics to patients as efficiently as possible. And what could be better than a blood test available at every high street pharmacy? Well, this is what Elizabeth Holmes, 19, and a Stanford dropout, was promising. She built Theranos on this promise. By 2015, after $700 million raised, their failure to produce a device which could do the business saw investors begin to pull out. A small team of sceptical scientists and journalists who had been following the story then set out to expose Holmes. The resulting trial for fraud dominated the headlines earlier this year. So back in the late 2010s, the diagnostics industry was reeling with shock. Then, just as the industry was on the path to recovery, COVID struck. And suddenly, billions needed access to a simple way of determining their infection status that could be performed anywhere, even in a pharmacy. Now, the humble lateral flow test has come into its own since the pandemic. Sure, it's not 100% accurate, but it never claimed to be. So looking back at Elizabeth Holmes, and then subsequently what happened during the pandemic, aren't we still waiting for that holy grail test that Theranos claimed to provide? Why hasn't this goal been achieved yet? Was the Theranos technology doomed to failure all along? And what have we learned from these disruptors to the diagnostics industry? To find out, I went to see our diagnostics team here at TTP to find someone who could help me out. My mentor and colleague, Giles Sanders, was happy to help. Giles is the head of in vitro diagnostics here at TTP, and he's been with us for 20 years. Over the past two decades, Giles has been influential in the development of numerous diagnostic systems that have been successfully placed on the market. 
He works across all aspects of in vitro diagnostics, from automated central lab to point of care and home use devices, which makes him the ideal person to explain more about how the industry has been impacted. I asked Giles to give me a quick rundown of the Theranos story from an industry perspective, before delving further into the idea of miniaturization more generally. Good to see you, Giles. We've been talking a little bit about, about Theranos and the Theranos story. Just give me a little bit of an explanation of what is Theranos and why it's, why it's been in the news. I think it's a was rather than it's, but I think it's almost an Icarus tale of a company who tried to do too much, promised too much, overvalued, underdelivered, and put people's lives at risk. As a company, they promised to deliver blood tests from tiny amounts of blood using a magical instrument known as the Edison and provide a whole range of different blood tests, both yeah, standard things like glucose, down to molecular diagnostics, all in a simple system. I think most of it was half-truths and other instruments being run behind closed doors. So that's when Theranos were actually working and delivering results for people. What was actually happening is they were collecting people's blood, blood samples, diluting them, and then running them on commercially available diagnostics instrumentation and not actually doing anything with that. Did, yeah, did they ever manage to show any evidence of, of their system in operation? Yes, albeit quite slight. There are videos on YouTube available which show somebody being tested using an Edison device, admittedly doing a very simple test on that and showing a result which is potentially the same as... A lab-based instrument. So there were some tests undertaken, but as far as I'm aware, the vast majority were basically done using off-the-shelf, large-scale lab automation. And so they were trying to bring the performance of the large-scale lab automation systems into people's hands. Is that is that what they're trying to do? Is the promise and in the initial vi vision was multifold. One was to work with a very small amount of blood. So a droplet rather than a whole tube. And the second one was miniaturization of instrumentation, potentially ultimately leading to a democratization where you could have an instrument at every Walgreens, every doctor's surgery, which could do those tests rather than having to go for a centralized location. So, so, again, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, where the tests are being done. Try, are people trying to do that a lot in the industry, trying to put, put um, instruments in Walgreens, for example? I mean, the world of point of care, for want of a better word, I mean, point of care, near patient, distributed, has been a world which has had promised to be taking off for the last 30, 40 years. I mean, ever since, you know, ever since probably the first glucose test, we had a promise of point of care. And people have been on and off trying to do so. What has been historically the case is barring a very small number of particular tests, obviously glucose, troponin for heart attacks, we have not seen the same distribution as was initially anticipated, say, 30, 40 years ago. So you mentioned the glucose testing market. 
is, is that the type of place where you would have a, a single drop of blood being able to give you actionable information? Absolutely. Over the last 30 years since kind of Tony Cass and Tony Turner created the first enzymatic test strip for glucose, we have actually seen miniaturization, miniaturization of the amount of blood required down to the point now where some amazing work from both you know, Dexcom and Abbott mean we can actually have a wearable glucose meters running for a very long time using interstitial fluids and actually using very small amounts to get that data. But what's important there is that the amount of material you're looking at is still many, many, many millions of molecules. So how feasible was what Theranos were trying to achieve? Well, not as much as they or their investors thought. Miniaturization methods for distributed tests, like the ones pioneered by Tony Cass and others, have been around for a while, especially in the realm of glucose testing for diabetes. We'll be delving further into that later on. But first, I wanted to continue our exploration into the validity of Theranos' hardware. I wondered what those pioneers of miniaturization must have thought about these Silicon Valley startups coming in with such wild and outrageous claims. So I went straight to the source and invited Tony Cass to our campus here at TTP for a chat. Tony's a professor of chemical biology at Imperial College London, where he's spent the best part of three decades. Alongside his fellowship of the Royal Society of Chemistry, Tony pioneered the use of synthetic electron transfer mediators for enzyme biosensors, and his work in this area led to the development of the first electronic blood glucose measuring system. It's this work which makes him the perfect person to assess the validity of Theranos' claims. So I asked him first about the state of the diagnostics industry over the past few years, and how the work that Theranos were trying to do fit into that trend. It's really good to see you, Tony. Yeah, good to be here. Thank you. I don't, maybe let's just, let's just kind of take ourselves back a few years and think about pre-COVID days. What state was the was the diagnostics industry in? Would you say kind of just before COVID hit? Uh, the diagnostics industry as a whole, I think, was beginning or had been for a while the, the transitioning from the kind of large lab model where you rented the equipment, you bought the reagents, you had to run a certain number of tests, which drove centralisation of the of the testing business, the diagnostics business, and it was beginning to sort of transition from that to more point of care or near patient or whatever the, the, the appropriate terminology was. I think it was near patient and originally and then became point of care. Uh, and, and certainly from what I remember, the growth in diagnostics as a whole, clinical diagnostics, was being driven by the point of care and the, the, the sort of large lab had, had pretty much plateaued mm-hmm. uh, in terms of growth. Uh, and the Theranos kind of idea that fitted in with uh, with that kind of general trend then well it, it kind of did i mean it was a very odd hybrid model because there was still testing centers that you would go to there would be a machine albeit a, allegedly a small machine a small small sample a single drop of blood allegedly <laughs> but yeah it was kind of on the wave of the industry orienting away from large scale centralized testing into more localized testing with the benefit really of getting an immediate result or, or a near 
immediate result. Yeah, well, what would that enable the patient customer to do with that kind of immediacy? Well, I think for the patient customer, if they had a chronic condition, it would enable them to monitor that chronic condition without the inconvenience of blood draws once a month at the local hospital and, and get an immediate feedback. I wondered whether the successes of the diagnostics industry in dealing with the COVID pandemic could run the risk of some sort of hubris where we've had such a great success for diagnostics there could be the chance of another Elizabeth Holmes coming along and trying to do something underhand. I asked Tony what he thought about this. I think it's unlikely. I think the, the, the thing that Theranos really demonstrated more than anything was that you had to do the due diligence and you couldn't rely on the story that was being told, you know, the fake it till you make it approach, I think, or, you know, for, for good reason, is now quite damaged uh, in hardware, for sure. Software is a little different, but, but for hardware, you know, you want to see the devices, you want to test them, you want to have them independently validated. So I think it'd be difficult for that particular story to be, to be told again. We, we kind of touched on what their aspiration was, which is this kind of like one drop of blood. But are there kind of any difficulties with that as a, as a concept? I mean, we, we do do things like glucose testing with, with a single drop of blood. Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, glucose is unusual in that it's present at very high concentrations. There are very few things that are present at the kind of concentrations that glucose is. And that means like any analytical problem the more concentrated the analyte the easier and more reliably it can be measured i mean glucose testing from from single capillary drops of blood was itself controversial in the early days because it was standardized against a, a venipuncture a blood draw um and a laboratory based method and there was i remember there's a lot of discussion about you know how similar is capillary blood to venous blood and therefore how relevant is a capillary result to a to, to the venous um, level oh, really so, yeah so and there was even discussion because because glucose is taken up by red cells there's also a lot of discussion about you know even whether you should be doing whole blood versus plasma glucose um oh, right yeah. so it, it, but in the end the numbers demonstrated that even if there was a difference in if you like an analytical sense it was still better for patients, diabetics, to be able to test themselves regularly. So you can kind of see why, why Theranos had a, a good hype behind them, because they were sort of trying to say, well, we can do a whole suite of different tests on that, on that drop. I mean, what was, the problem, what was the problem with that? Well, I think that, that there is a general problem with measuring many different markers, whether you do it in a lab base or a localized uh, point of care test which is which is how you interpret the data so if you're doing something like say a thyroid function test there's three or four markers and they should all behave either in, by moving in the same direction or opposite directions but but it, it's clear cut how you interpret those four values similarly for liver function tests although even there you can get outliers in the sense that there can be reasons that are not liver related for one of the liver function tests to be high or low okay. and so interpretation then becomes becomes an issue um and you know if theranos claiming to do 2000 
they assumed, I think, that you'd have 2,000 things measured and 1,999 would all be within the reference range and there would be one that was out. out uh-huh. But, but I, I don't, well, we don't really know enough about how biochemistry physiology is coupled together to even be sure that that, that would be the case. Yeah, I think I've, I've, I've heard somebody saying that, you know, that, that's great. Uh, g- give me all that data, but I'm only really going to use one or two pieces of it. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I can't see the, the, it's too noisy, the rest of it. It, it, it is. And, and also, I think you have to remember is that clinicians take a diagnostic, a molecular test as just one piece of evidence in the diagnostic process. So they'll look at family history, they'll look at body mass index, degree of activity, lifestyle, and, and all of those feed into the final diagnostic decision. Uh, yeah, so were they, were they trying to replace the, the doctor then, replace the physician and maybe kind of had a bit of a misplaced optimism? Yeah, although it was never re- really clear you know, what they, were what they were really trying to do, except to revolutionise the diagnostics industry. And also, I think probably that was a somewhat distinctly American approach because, you know, here we get our blood tests for free. Most countries in Europe have social medicine and, and, and therefore there isn't this sort of drive to, to massively reduce costs of testing. I thought you were going to say kind of a, a massively Californian thing because that's the kind of disruptor um, sort of model, right? They, right. They came yeah. from Silicon Valley. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. And I think it's quite ironic that the chemistry that they were using were based, was basically standard chemiluminescence assays, largely or electrogenerated chemiluminescence assays, largely, which were already being used in in the big machines. So they weren't they weren't doing anything innovative in terms of the chemistry. Most of the electromechanical stuff in the whatever they called it, the Newton or the Einstein. Edison like was it? Yeah, Edison. Yeah, I don't right, know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was really just trying to make the big machine approach of pumps and tubes and valves fit into a small box. So, whether it's the chemistry behind it or the actual hardware itself, Theranos clearly didn't have the results to back up their claims. Everything they were attempting was built on sand. It's mainly a wonder that it took the industry so long to find Elizabeth Holmes out. But their ambition of wanting to test a whole range of things with one drop of blood was certainly one which many in the diagnostics industry shared. Bringing testing to the patient with ease of care and ease of use would have the potential to completely change the diagnostics landscape. So, is that the way the diagnostics industry is heading? How close are we, really, from that goal? And where has Theranos left the industry? Has it been helped or hindered by the fraud? I went back to Giles to find out. Well, thinking about the diagnostics industry as a whole, are the types of things that people could detect changing or the desire to use diagnostics to look at more and more attributes? Is that happening or or are we just having better ways of looking at the same things? I think we actually are lucky to live in a time where our biological understanding is evolving at an astounding rate. If we look at 25 years ago or 30 years ago, we did the Human Genome Project came to the end, and we might have thought that was the end of biology. In fact, that was the start of biology. 
and what we've been discovering in the last 30 years, and this is rolling into diagnostics, rolling into drug discovery as well, is that there are new targets, new things we are only beginning to understand which are having an impact on how human biology works, which will ultimately become diagnostic. So if we look at look at things such as, at the simplest, gene expression, but also other bits, so non-coding bits of RNA we're just beginning to understand, which could be both future drug targets and future diagnostics. And kind of conversely, epigenetics, which is a huge emerging area, which is both telling us about the methylation and other states of your DNA, how active it is, how accessible it is, these are beginning to tell you things about your own body. Methylation states are things which certainly could be seen as a future diagnostic. Maybe I can rephrase it and think about what sort of information can we get from blood now that we that we weren't able to is it that we're now making more use of the same material moving from my kind of joy of biology evolving very quickly to reality diagnostics moves quite slowly actually it moves in there are jumps so molecular diagnostics where we're looking for bits of dna happened in the mid 80s and that is happening more and more, and we can see a very small amount of diseases or propensity in a human. A lot of the protein detection is, we're still looking for the same proteins, but we can see them more sensitively. Interestingly, I mean, I think probably the last decade has started to see, I think, an awareness of some particularly low concentration proteins kind of work by companies such as Quanterix who are looking at the kind of very edge of what is detectable in human and other samples. And we're beginning to get more information about particular protein markers, for example, ones which might tell you brain damage, early stage of neurodegeneration, uh, whether you've just knocked your head or whether you've actually done, yeah, had a kind of damaging collision, all of which is kind of becoming very important and enabling certainly decisions actually to be made on the sports field, which wouldn't have been made 10 years ago. And again, they're trying to detect low levels of proteins. And how do they get around some of the sampling and statistical issues that we mentioned earlier? The approach Quanterix take are, is very different to anything envisaged by Elizabeth Holmes. They were dealing with a real method of collecting useful data. So Elizabeth Holmes was taking a sample, diluting it and hoping you'd detect it on the same machine as you would detect anything else. What Quanterix do is actually take a sample and basically turn it into tens to hundreds of thousands of small reaction chambers. Each one of those, if we see a light coming up, it means there's a protein molecule. So we're doing single molecule protein counting. So you're actually counting how many proteins, not trusting a sensor to give you a rough and right number. It's actually giving you a proper count of how many single things are happening. It's what's kind of known as a digital immunoassay. So we, we were talking briefly earlier about the development life cycle of diagnostics. And if you're, if you're going for IVD clear waved, it can take, one example we've mentioned is t- taking seven years. Are, are there any anything we can take from this startup culture 
trying to move fast and break things that can be applied to the diagnostics industry and, and IVD development. If we kind of move out of kind of talking about Theranos and talk about where we are in the world at the moment, we have seen a, an amazing acceleration over the last year. What has happened in the world of COVID with governments providing, governments both the FDA and others around the world providing what is an emergency use authorization. We have seen an acceleration of things moving from concept to diagnostics on the market. It would be nice that we could probably reach a ground which is slower than EUA, but faster than what is the standard at some point in the future. I fear we will probably have a little bit of a COVID diagnostics hangover coming in the next couple of years as we re- as we start looking at the data in a bit more detail and realise that not everything which was given authorization was at a quality which would have been given authorization in normal times. But we appreciate things have to be done quickly. Yeah, so um, um, what, what kind of steps might you have, have missed out in, 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 the, in the interests of expediency? Level of trials, level of data, having a fully detailed design history, knowing, knowing every part of your bomb, validating every part of your bomb, and conversely actually having software which is developed for medical use. There have certainly been, I think, aspects of things where people have worked with what is available today, whereas a lot of diagnostics, we are thinking about what is available not only today, but in 10 years' time, such that we don't have to make rapid changes throughout the life cycle. Is there, is there a room for, for startup companies to exist in that space? Yes, I think no doubt. I mean, we know of, we work with a number of startups and we see a number of very exciting startups. But I would say that those startups need to be aware that if you're going to do a proper diagnostic, it is going to take time. And even the greatest ambition in the world, and the biggest hope, it will take quite a lot more time than you think. Yes, seven years is probably a realistic time and it's going to take a lot more money than you think. It's not going to be, I'll get a three million pound investment and our next year we'll all be doing really well with a 300 million pound company. It will take time, it will take effort. And to reach the kind of the final greatest value inflection point of being used in the field as a diagnostic can take somewhere between 30 million to probably 300 million, depending upon the scale and the complexity of the diagnostic device you're trying to do. From an industry perspective, clearly, what Theranos were trying to do doesn't quite fit in with the larger diagnostics industry. Sure, COVID accelerated timeframes and maybe fed into that Silicon Valley idea of moving fast and breaking things. But in normal times, diagnostics requires regulatory rigour. And as we move further away from the Theranos story, the pushback against the Silicon Valley fundraising model has become even more pronounced. But I wanted to know if there was a genuine way to create the kind of hardware that Theranos wanted. And more than that, what does the journey of a legitimate diagnostic instrument look like? From concept to clinic. I asked Tony about this focusing on the important role played by the regulators. So you were, you were kind of mentioning about Quantarix. 
What would they have done differently to someone like Theranos? Are, are they kind of looking at the, the problem in a slightly different way? Yeah, in a, in a completely different way. So they still use antibodies and immunoassays, but essentially, as, as far as I understand the system, there isn't the kind of traditional approach to doing immunoassays. Everything, at least in its original embodiment, I haven't actually looked recently, but in its original embodiment, it was a bundle of optical fibers with each end of each fiber having a particular chemistry on it. Yeah, that's quite um, different. That, so it was very, very different. And and I think it's fair to say that Quanterix is still around and still selling and, and developing new assays. Because um, Theranos were, were also trying to move quite quickly as well. What was the typical life cycle of a, of a kind of diagnostics instrument development? I mean, I think bringing something from proof of concept to something where you're confident it will work over a range of individuals, because obviously... Every individual has a different background as well as a different analyte level. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that can be done relatively, compared to drug discovery, it's very quick. Yeah, sure, um, sure, sure. But it, it's probably a matter of a, a small number of years. After that, it's the regulatory processes and they take they take their own time. Mm. But, but nonetheless, a new diagnostic, I think, could be introduced re- reasonably quickly, as we saw with COVID. Exactly, exactly. I, I, I think actually the... Um with Theranos, they were they were trying to work outside the regulatory framework as well. Is that right? I think they were trying to bamboozle the regulators. I mean, again, it's this due diligence that they wouldn't actually let the Californian regulators, I think it was, actually see the instruments, okay. let alone test them, claiming commercial confidentiality. There were certainly signs from the Californian regulators, possibly the FDA as well, that they were not happy with what Theranos was doing. But Theranos were, were basically just trying to raise money at that point. But it didn't. It wasn't actually the regulators who who clamped down on them in the end, was it? It was. Uh, I think it was a journalist. Yeah. Well, it was actually two people who worked for Theranos originally who were very unhappy with what was going on in the company and had had left the company. And then they spoke to John Kerry, who Mm -hmm. was, I think, Wall Street journalist, who had, from from a different direction, had worried or had suspicions about what Theranos were up to. But he couldn't do much until he got these insider statements from ex-employees. So why was it? Why did it have to come to that rather than the regulators rooting this out? Well, I think the regulators were just being put off all the time, and I, I don't know the details of exactly what Theranos were claiming in their Walgreens yeah. clinics. Um, certainly, in a lot of cases, the Walgreens clinic took a twenty mil venipuncture and sent it off to Quest or whoever okay, for okay, analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think. It was certainly in a, in a less regulated environment. I think they could go further and probably had suitable disclaimers, you know, about talking to your physician uh-huh. and all, all the rest of it. All that uh, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think? Do you think the the kind of scandal had a, had an impact on how people develop diagnostics products or kind of the appetite for new developments? I don't. Th- think so. As I say, I think there's certainly more diligence now being done on claimed new types of diagnostics. I think there's there's still a need. I think one of the issues that's always been around with diagnostic developments is ultimately what's the size of the market. 
And sometimes you might have a great diagnostic, but if in fact it's not going to yield more than a certain number of 100,000 tests a year because the condition that you're testing for is quite rare or you know there are better other ways of doing it. I, I think it's more of a sort of commercial business barrier rather than any, any technical, uh, technical barrier. Naturally, the Theranos scandal was always going to cause a regulatory pushback because after hundreds of millions of dollars have been squandered, regulators weren't going to be fooled again. And this stance could have stymied growth and innovation in the diagnostics industry. But the dreamers in diagnostics weren't going to let Theranos stop them. Something proven by the pandemic more than anything. So where are we at now? What's the state of the art in the diagnostics industry today? Here's Giles again. What sort of problems are, are the diagnostics industry trying to solve both for what benefits is the diagnostics industry trying to deliver for patients and for their stakeholders? I, mean, I think we've, yeah, I mean, we are, certain dreams are happening. Companies like Grail and Garden doing circulating free tests. That's incredible. We are seeing a world of distributed tests. So I actually have at home something where I've got to provide two vials of blood, not nano containers of blood, and getting a blood test done in a in a way of distributed you don't a distributed test doesn't have to be that the machine's next to you it can also be that the sample is distributed so collection is just as important as the analysis yeah the convenience of collection can be as important yeah. as convenience of analysis we are moving to a point where more sensors more information will give us better well-being i mean we Half of us wear what was even 10 years ago, kind of an unbelievable sort of device. I've got permanent blood oxygen and heart rate monitor on my wrists. I can do an ECG if I need to. And that's incredible. And those sort of things will give us more information. Conversely, I need higher end technologies, the Quanterics of this world providing higher sensitivity tests will enable us to identify new markers. Interestingly, those new markers, you may ultimately use a more traditional assay once we know what we're looking for. And do you think the vision of having a, like a tricorder that could read out real-time health information, is that still a long way away? Depends what your tricorder is. I live in an iOS world and I've my, my phone and my watch are, to some level, what would be a tricorder for the 1960s, actually. Yes, to tell you that you're going to have cancer in 2027 and you're you really should be changing your diet tomorrow some of that's a long way away but actually through a lot of that can be done today but it won't can't be done from a single drop of blood or from a continuous monitoring so actually some of the things which we kind of think of science fiction are almost science fact now and is logistics part of the issue then is it less a less a case of it's not possible to do it but it's not possible to do it conveniently. Depends what you call convenience. I mean, I think some things won't be possible unless you take five millilitres of blood. I think unless you're a particular sort of human, that's going to be inconvenient. But no, yeah, no, yeah no, no doubt you don't want to be t taking that much in your home. Well, there are companies who are beginning to do that, distributed collection, kind of wearable devices, which will collect blood, and then you can send it back for testing. 
And if we talk about logistics, I mean, it's back to the what is the vision of diagnostics in the future? I think it is probably there will be a bit of anything goes, but it's the right thing at the right place. So there may there will be dumb sensors in the home or wearable dumb sensors, making sure you or your loved ones haven't fallen down or well alive, doing okay. There will be diagnostics machines quite possibly in your Walgreens telling you that you've got a particular disease, you need to go and see your doctor. There will be diagnostic machines in your home. I mean, we're aware of many which might say you've got COVID, you've got flu, or you haven't got COVID, you haven't got flu, you're fine to do whatever you want to do in your life. Absolutely. But conversely, there will always be need for the large-scale centralised labs, which can do a huge number of tests on a single sample. You can't, or it'd be very unlikely you can do all of those with the variety and flexibility which you will get in the centralised lab in the future. So what, what aspects of that central lab experience could be the most transformative things to bring into the home? I think when, I know, it's, let's put it around the other way, actually. I think a lot of people distribute and put things in the home for the sake of doing so. Actually, you've got to think, if you're going to focus on what is distributed for a diagnostic, it's got to be where actually the action of it being distributed, of it being local, actually is something which helps. So that can be yeah, preventative if you don't need to go to a hospital. If it stops you going to a hospital, that's a great thing. Or it can be a directional. If, it, if you can do a send off for a, let's say, a grail test, which can then go, okay, you you need to go to this oncology unit. Excellent. And the more you can do that sort of use distribution to almost enable hospitals to move quickly, particularly in a world of waiting lists, which we're all moving into now, I'm sure, certainly in the UK, and I can't imagine in the post-COVID world any health service is not suffering. And the more quickly we can move things people through and into the right therapy right now, the better. When looking at the recent trends of the diagnostics industry, it's impossible to ignore COVID. Because now, the entire world is familiar with the jargon once only known to specialists like Giles and Tony. From lateral flows to PCR tests, COVID put diagnostics front and centre in the fight to contain the pandemic. But what has happened since then? Did it, like Theranos, fundamentally change the nature of the industry? As we come to a close, I asked Tony for his thoughts on the effect of the pandemic on diagnostics. But COVID uh, was a, a massive boon <laughs> for the manufacturers of those tests. Yeah, exactly. And it was a desperate need as well. I mean, there was a relatively early paper from Sir John Bell and his group in Oxford who looked at all of the commercial lateral flow tests for COVID and concluded that the specificity and sensitivity really were almost of no use whatsoever. So all the tests that they, they looked at, it's a half a dozen or a dozen or something yeah. like that. No, none of the tests really met the kind of sensitivity, specificity requirements that one would really like. 
But it was an odd situation. It was there was desperation about everything, you know, vaccines, PPE. So diagnostics was caught up in that. Yeah. And and you know, you could argue that the amount of money spent buying these not very good tests actually funded the development of the next generation and the next generation. And so they got they got better. Yeah, it's been it's actually been it's, it has been a massive. Yeah, it has been. I mean, it's been a great uplift for the for the diagnostics industry as a whole. Yeah, it's just a shame that there wasn't the manufacturing capacity in the UK. I mean, there are some very good, as you know, lateral flow based diagnostics companies yeah. in the UK, but there didn't seem to be the ability or, or, or the capacity to ramp up production quickly enough. Whether that was of the antibodies or, of, I mean, there was a real shortage of lateral flow membranes at one point. Yeah, well, it kind of like, um, yeah, plastic, um, sterile components. Yeah, and, and and actually, there was even, I think, a kind of a bit of a time lag between kind of discovering the antigens and being able to get the antibodies as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that so I think in the end, it was the kind of large scale manufacturing capabilities in China that really generated enough devices. And the, the nice thing about the daily testing or, or you know, three times a week testing was that you would it, it would better able to cope with false positives and false negatives. Because if you were going to test again in two days' time, you know, your false positive will have disappeared probably on a second test or, yeah. or your false negative would have come up on a on a second or Yeah, I always had that kind of reassurance of I'm kind of testing every other day, then it keeps on coming negative. Is that probably negative? Yeah. You know, I've yeah. validated that enough times. Ex- exactly. Obviously we've talked we've talked a lot about kind of small volume testing and we've talked a bit about kind of expanding and doing multiplexed assays. What what, what do you consider one of the key needs for, for the diagnostics industry? What are the what are the market kind of crimes? out for that they're not really getting at the moment if i was going to get on my hobby horse at this point i I would say moving away from single point tests to continuous monitoring i mean it's happened in glucose testing already Mm -hmm. i mean the first cgms that were really consumer friendly came out in 2014 basically and now you know the whole field is moving in that direction partly because margins on finger stick strips are so small Mm -hmm. that unless you're making them by the billion it's very difficult to turn a profit but also because the information content in continuous measurements continuous monitoring is is much higher than in a a single test even glucose where you're doing maybe if you're type 1 diabetic maybe four or five a day compare that to actually you know looking on your watch and yeah. seeing the trend of your glucose over the previous eight hours and uh, and it's already revealing clinical insight as well in in a way that the, the point testing didn't and I, i'm sure there'll be lots of other things where we do a single test and we say oh that's in range or that's out of range you draw a conclusion really having a not baseline the individual yeah. anyway and then b by not knowing how things change yeah, it's quite an isolated event that you've you've probed there. yeah 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 I, I i can guess how you might respond to this but um do, do you think that the increased focus on testing and, and diagnostics is is a good thing i think it is i mean i'm one of those people who measures their blood pressure 
I don't have, I have a very, not low, but I have a normal blood pressure, but I'll still check it, you know, once every couple of weeks. So I've got these body composition scales. We essentially, it's a sort of bioimpedance. And so it tells you, apart from your weight, it tells you your percentage fat, percentage oh, yeah. water, percentage muscle, bone. And I get on that every morning as well. And so I'm a bit of a, a bit of a, a geek when yeah, it comes like to sort of, Valley, yeah, yeah, yeah. Con- quantifying myself. But I, I do think that there's enough evidence that if you can provide people with clear information about their state of health, I think part of the difficulty is for, for someone who's not biochemist or a chemist or sometimes telling them, it's easy with an infectious disease because people know I'm either infected or I'm not infected. But, you know, if you say, well, actually your glucose is is eight millimolar and ideally it should be between four and six, you know, that's not, they'll think, well, six, eight, that's not much of a difference. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's a big education issue in there as well. That, you know, how do you, how do you get people to A, understand the numbers and then B, to take action based upon those. But there have been, there's been a few studies of, of smoking cessation mm-hmm. where they did a sort of classic randomized controlled trial, took a group of people who wanted to give up smoking. We're going through the NHS program and half of them just went through the standard NHS smoking cessation program. The other half went through the same program, but were told on a weekly basis, I think, what their cotinine levels were. And cotinine is a nicotine metabolite and its level in, in saliva or in urine is an indicator of how much nicotine you've, you've taken in. And, and there was the statistically significant retention onto the group that had that extra bit of information. Is that right? That had the, the, I don't know how long it lasted beyond the end of the program, but certainly during the program. I wonder whether you kind of feel a bit more control over the, the whole process if you're sort of measuring it. I'm getting and maybe some positive feedback as well. Mm, I think that's that's it. You can actually see the consequences of, of what you're doing, of what your behaviour change is. Was COVID a boon for the diagnostics industry? Well, By making the focus of the entire industry solely about one type of testing, it's difficult to know as we move back to other sectors whether they'll still be truly effective. But the way in which it's brought diagnostics into the public consciousness is undeniable. And this could turn out for the good, both in terms of investment and innovation. And bizarrely, the Theranos scandal may actually end up doing something similar. Of course, in the short term, Holmes and her acolytes introduced an astounding lack of faith in an industry normally known for its security. But in the long term? Well, by putting diagnostics in the news, and not least that idea of single-drop measurements, could Theranos' dream be one day realised by others with a more genuine approach? Who knows? But if Tony and Giles have taught me anything, whether it's innovation in miniaturisation or in wearable devices to track our health. The combination of new technology alongside solid chemistry means that diagnostics certainly has an exciting future, Theranos or not. That's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. And a huge thanks to both Tony and Giles for sharing their knowledge and perspective on this fascinating time for the diagnostics industry. 
We'll be back next week with our final episode of the series as we take a step back to look at investing in life sciences in the post-COVID era to ask what the future holds for those who want to get their science funded. We'll see you then. Invent Life Sciences is a podcast from TTP. It was hosted by me, Stuart Lowe, biotechnology and bioinstrumentation consultant at TTP. It was produced by Harry Stott. The assistant producers were Ewan Cameron and Florian Bohr. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.